0: did on the cross and repent and turn from their sin, Father, that you said they would be saved, and we thank you for that, God. Thank you for that gift, the gift of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Why? I'm so glad that you're here. I wanted to begin today by asking you how many, to take a little hand poll here. How many of you have heard of multiply 25? Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Okay. Well, that's good. That's better. Now, how many of you have any clue what that is? Yeah. Okay. A lot fewer. So Multiply 25 is um, our vision statement for what we believe God has called us to do by the year 2025. And what that has to do primarily with is multiplying healthy gospel churches throughout this city. Uh, We've always had that church planting vision. We've always had the desire to not just plant one church... But even when there was just a handful of us, God gave us the, the calling or the desire to plant a church that would become a healthy church planting machine, if you will. That, that members were called and, and knew that, that we're all part of raising up and sending out people to, to multiply healthy churches all throughout this city and, and maybe even beyond wherever the Lord may call people to go. But to make that a reality, we began to articulate uh, this vision statement, multiply 25, to say what's it going to take, what's our process to be able to start doing this. We've already planted a church in New Orleans, we've planted many churches in South Sudan Africa, uh, but we are looking at what can we do to, to, make the, to put the infrastructure in place, the, the ministries in place, to really start doing this on a, a larger scale our, our prayer is that by 2025 that we will have reached the the critical mass if you will to have the resources to regularly send out 10 percent of our of our resources our people and our financial resources that that we're not trying to build a, a massive um, mega church here on the corner of Norris Ferry and Southern Loop but we've got to keep reaching people. We want to keep reaching this community. But as we do, we want to send out people to spread healthy gospel churches all throughout the city. and Because there is no other better hope for our city. I'm raising kids, right? And they're starting to hit that stage of life where we hope they live in Shreveport. And all they hear and all we hear is how terrible Shreveport is. And we say, okay, to the glory of God, which is more important than this... But to the glory of God, we want to be a part of transforming this city by the gospel through planting and multiplying healthy churches. Now, I want to say that this beautiful worship center has been a part of that. Our one initiative we put in place was we need to have a bigger facility to be able to handle more people, to be able to get to the size of 500 members that would handle that sending out. We also, and so we praise the Lord for that. Look at this incredible facility the Lord has provided, and thank you for your faithfulness. We also have been able to put in place what we call a milestone map, which is a strategic equipping process for children from cradle to college that we say this is how we lean in with parents and equip them in key milestones of the children's life to equip them to go to college and be, or to go out into that stage of life and to be faithful Followers of Christ, and so we're excited about that milestone map. We've also more recently Transitioned Jared from students and missions to adult equipping and missions to adult discipleship And so he is in the process of leading us to take our equipping ministries to the next level our core classes Will be expanding and our cohort ministries will be expanding all of it with this vision in mind of we want to have an equipping Pathway we're laying the tracks for a church planning train, okay? That's what we want to do. We're laying those tracks to equip members to become church planting teams. Now, why do I share all that? Well, it's important that we keep you updated on where we are in that vision. But especially in our text today, to to continue that language of church planting, we see Jesus establishing his core team for the very most important church planting team ever. And that's the apostles who were the foundation of the New Testament church, which is what we're here because of their work right now. And so we're going to look today as Jesus calls some 12 disciples out to be the leadership of his new church, and we're going to see he equips this new leadership with some new values that are very important on how they should live Father, I ask for your help this morning. My prayer is that you use this time to further equip all of us to both be disciples, but ultimately that you would call out from among us men and women who say, I want to be a part of multiplying healthy churches throughout this city and beyond. So Lord, use this time to transform us to your image and it's in christ's name we pray amen all right first of all jesus says here's here's the new leadership he's putting in place luke records us jesus putting in place the new leadership to his church plant look at verse 12 through 16 in 12 through 16 luke says this and in these days jesus went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to god And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Simon, we saw Simon called at the fishing scene, right? Whom he then named Peter. He changed his name to Peter. And Andrew, his brother. And then James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who was called the zealot and Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Okay, so let's stop there and look what's going on. In these verses, we see Jesus calls out from among a larger group of disciples. He calls out from among them 12 men to form a new leadership team for his church. Now, if we want to continue in modern-day language, this is not a church plant, actually. This is a church replant. A replant is when you go into a church that's struggling for various reason, and you you infuse them with a healthiness of new believers or or of believers, and you infuse them with new leadership and direction and vision, and say let's let's get you back on track so that we can reach this community. Well, the original church, to to terribly mix up these metaphors, but in in the original plan of the Old Testament, God had established the twelve tribes of Israel, twelve leaders of His people. And we see that that was the original people of God, but they strayed away from God's Word. They got unhealthy, and so they began to reject the Messiah. They began to reject Jesus. And so Jesus says, well, we're going to put in a new leadership team, and we're going to shore up these people of God and it becomes known as the church and the word church in Greek literally just means the called out ones Ekklesia called ek means out It's the called out ones and so those who from among the world the pagan world hear the gospel of Jesus are called out by the gospel to faith in Christ and they begin to gather together and form the community of the saints, or the called out ones, or the church. And so Jesus is putting in a new leadership team and he calls out 12 disciples, and it implies that they are replacing the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you have a new work of God in the church. And so, what we see though, first of all, before Jesus does that, notice what he does in verse 12. Luke 6 12 says in those days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God so before Jesus did anything he spent the entire evening praying to God it's very important to notice that but Luke scholars also comment a lot of Greek scholars who analyze language say that this whole this whole scene is worded very interestingly. That The mention of going to the mountain immediately uh, evokes this picture of God is going to give his revelation. That's what often happens in the scriptures when we see them going up to the mountain. So God is going to give his revelation, but notice also this phrasing in prayer to God that Jesus continued in prayer to God and in the way that's phrased the scholars say that that actually is a way of describing that that he was going and God was speaking to him so Jesus is pictured by Luke as going up to this mountain to receive the revelation from God and he spent the entire evening with God And it's all presented as this is a divine initiative. This is God taking the initiative and speaking to Jesus to say, here's what I want you to do. Now sometimes we think Jesus, knowing he is God, we think, well, he already kind of knew everything. and It's hard to understand, but in Jesus' flesh, he was self-limiting. And so it's best just to learn from him as if he were fully human only, knowing he is fully God, but he limited himself and did all the things that we have to do. He lived by faith. He lived in complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. He sought God in prayer as all humans should do, though he was never not fully God. So it's beyond our understanding, but I'm glad I can't fully explain to you God, right? Because then he wouldn't be much of a God. But being fully God and fully man, he limited himself and does the very things that we need to do, go to God in prayer. But here we see that this is all, Luke is presenting it in a way that is God's divine initiative. God is taking the initiative and saying, here's what I want you to do. In fact, the New International Commentary of the New Testament, Green says this, quote, as Luke presents it, the idea of choosing itself The election of 12 persons and the choice of these particular persons from among the larger group of disciples, all three are divinely sanctioned. In other words, it was God's idea to choose some men, it was God's idea to choose 12 men, it was God's idea to choose these 12 men in particular. This is God saying, Jesus, here's what I want you to do. And so he goes to the Father in prayer before the Lord, goes up to the mountain to hear from the Lord, and the Lord says, I want you to choose 12 men, and here's their names. We must make prayer foundational to our vision of multiplying healthy churches. We must... Go to the listening room and listen to the Lord. Lord, what would you have us do? How would you have us to do this? Where would you have us to do this? Who do you want to send? How do we equip them? Where do we send them? Lord, speak to us. We are listening. Would you just agree with me now to begin now to bathe this entire process in prayer? And later I'll give you four specific prayer requests I'm going to ask you to please covenant to to pray these things for us but in our text after praying all night long look at verse 13 what he says Luke says and when day came he called his disciples and chose and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles now Jesus does what the father tells him to do from among the crowd he chooses 12 men who are among the group of people called disciples or followers, and he says, I'm going to name them apostles. And in verse 14 and following, we see their names. Simon, whom Jesus named Peter, Andrew, was Peter's brother. James and John, who were brothers, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and another Simon, who was called the Zealot, and two Judases. One was the son of James, and the other is called uh, Judas is the the traitor who becomes a traitor I think it's so interesting that Jesus that God initiated that we that Jesus called Judas who would become a traitor I could spend a whole matter of fact I wrote just about a whole other sermon on that right there and I had to cut it for the sake of time or y'all would have lost you all before we got to the end of the sermon but think about it God's plan includes the traitor who he knows is going to betray just as a quick aside, when, when you go through trouble, don't assume that God's plan wasn't for you to go through that and oh my gosh, we fail, we're hitting difficulties. No, that's God uses even the sin of the world to accomplish his purposes. There's the aside. I could have gone 30 more minutes. I'm not going to. But to make them apostles, he says he names them apostles. To make them apostles means that he was making them his official authoritative representatives, his leaders. His recognized leadership team. These men play a unique role in the founding of the New Testament church. If you use the term Apostle with capital A, they are unique. They had a unique leadership role in the founding of the church. In fact, if you add to them the Apostle Paul, whom the resurrected Jesus later added to this list, removed Judas the traitor, add Apostle Paul... And there's your 12 apostles who were the founders of the church. They wrote your New Testament scriptures. They, and some of their designated agents, wrote the New Testament scriptures. They were the foundation of the church. And the one main qualification of all the apostles that they had in common was that Jesus particularly chose them. They followed him, and they saw his death his burial and they saw him in the resurrected body remember Paul saw the resurrected Jesus appeared to him the resurrected Jesus officially sent them and said you are my apostles and they wrote the scriptures or they had someone write it as they told them what to write so Luke says this is my this is Jesus's new leadership team And he says that he calls them out from among the what? The general term for those following Jesus were called disciples. So the apostles, the leadership team, were disciples. What exactly is a disciple? What does it mean? Where do we get this very familiar term that we call disciples? Well, this came out of Galilee... And everything I'm about to tell you comes from uh, Reverend Ray Vanderlaan, who I've seen, learned a lot from since Jamie. we hired Jamie. He's put me under this guy. And this guy studied all the culture of, Jew, of Judaism and, and really explains this whole system. Uh, to be a disciple came out of Galilee. And he says that Galilee was basically the Harvard, the Yale, or the Oxford of discipleship. It's little Galilee becomes this place where the greatest discipleship system came and the discipleship system started when a boy a Jewish boy was was as early as they could in life their first 12 years of their life you know what they did for their first 12 years in their primary school they memorized the Torah they memorized the first five books of your Bible now he wants to join me right now and say let's commit to memorizing I, I'm just now thinking I'm going to reread it, okay? Uh, memorized it by the age of 12. That was their goal. And if a boy by the age of 12 had memorized the Torah, he, was, he reached the point where he then could stand on the day of Passover and represent his family before God, a 12-year-old, and slaughter the lamb to atone for the sins of his family. So it was a massive coming to age at the age of 12. And then most of them, vast majority of them, went on to their vocation. They went to work. They were fishermen. They were stonecutters. But their calling at that stage was to be the absolute godliest stone cutter around. For you have memorized the Torah. But most of them went on to their vocations at the age of 12. I'm loving this system. It's too bad my kids are grown and I've missed it, but you still have a chance to put your kids through this. No, and then the brightest and best who had that memorized didn't go to work. They said, "Okay, well now you can continue." And for the next few years, you know what they did? They memorized the Tanakh, the Law, Prophets, and Writings, what we call the Old Testament. So the next few years, they memorized the rest of the entire Old Testament. And so then, by the age of 15, most of those boys had memorized at least large sections, large amounts of your Old Testament. Then most of them went on to their careers and worked their vocation. But a select few of them, who were considered the brightest and the best, would be continuing their study. And so from age 15 through age 30, they would become a Talmud or a disciple that's where we get this idea. A disciple of a respected, revered, honored rabbi. And what this 15-year-old boy would do, this freshman in high school, what he would do would go follow, sit at the feet of a rabbi for a week, for a month, for two months, for three months, for several months until finally the rabbi would recognize him. And, and that, 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 that 15-year-old boy would say, Most esteemed rabbi, your reputation precedes you. Do you think I could follow you? And what he's saying is, do you think I am capable of being one of your students, of becoming like you? And the vast majority of the time, well, what the rabbi would do would say, well, quote to me portions of your Pentateuch. Quote to me these texts. What did Isaiah say? And test them. And the vast majority of the times he would say, no, you were not able to. And they would go on to, to be uh, their fishermen or tent makers or stone cutters and to be the absolute godliest version of that you could possibly be but the select few who were the brightest and the best he would say yes follow me and then that disciple that Talmud would become absolutely consumed with being just like that rabbi Everything in life was consumed with studying what the rabbi said, watching how the rabbi lived. Their life was to be just like that rabbi. In fact, the rabbi would move in with his talmudim, with his disciples. He would move in with them. In fact, Reverend Vanderlaan says he thinks that Jesus lived in Simon Peter, his mother-in-law's house. When, remember he rebuked the fever? He thinks that he lived in her home with his disciples. In fact, the disciples were said to be covered with the dust of the rabbi because everywhere that disciple, everywhere that rabbi went, the disciple trailed around and got covered with the dust off of his sandals. He was consumed with being just like his rabbi. So Jesus did all of this. Jesus went to school through twelve. As a human, and learned and memorized the Bible, consumed with memorizing your Old Testament, your the Torah, and then the next few years, by age fifteen, he had the whole Tanakh or whole Old Testament, Law, Prophets, and Writings memorized, and then he was selected among to be the brightest and best to sit and to follow from fifteen to about age thirty. At the feet of a disciple, of, of a rabbi, and learn everything he could from that rabbi. And then he not, be- not only became a teacher, but he became a rabbi himself, which meant that he was considered to speak the very words of God. He carried the authority of God when he spoke, and it was validated by his healings. And so people were recognizing this one from Nazareth, one of our own, he has become a full fledged rabbi. And then when he interpreted scripture, not only was he a rabbi, but he was the rabbi. He said, I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of the scriptures. I am the long-awaited one that the Old Testament that many of you have memorized has pointed to, this one who will come, who will liberate the oppressed, who will set the captives free, who will bring upon the age of the favor of the Lord. This rabbi, this distinguished, honored rabbi was saying he is the Messiah, and he was validating it with his healings and with his miracles. And the people were believing, and they were gathering, and massive crowds were seeing him, listening him, validating him, and saying, it's true, this is the Messiah. And so they're flocking to hear from him. And so then he goes up to this mountain, and he the people know he's going up to see, to hear from God. He comes down from the mountain, and what does he say? He calls these 12 men out of the crowd. Simon, come here. James, yeah, you too, James, yeah. No, that James. <laughs> come here. John, your brother. Andrew, Simon, your brother. Judas, yeah, you. and Yeah, you, Judas. Come here. And he calls them all, and they gather together. And what does he say? You are my disciples. What is he saying to them? I believe you can become like me. I want you to be the leaders of this new church. Wow. What an honor. The Messiah, the the rabbi of all rabbis. These guys were flunkies. These guys were fishermen and tax collectors. They weren't the brightest and best. They were just average guys who weren't selected to keep going and keep studying. They were working their trade. And Jesus said... When, when all of them know that they had already been politely dismissed, go be the godliest version of tent maker and stone cutter and fisherman you can be, Jesus says, no, I'm selecting you. I want you to be consumed with studying from me and becoming just like me, and I believe you can do it. So this was a huge honor. Now think about it. If we follow the, 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 the path of the ages of these students... How old do you think these 12 disciples are? If you think about pictures that you've seen, right? They're all bald like me and got a beard. So you're thinking they're about my age. Well, if Ray Vanderlaan is correct, most of them are sophomores in high school. 16, 17-year-old. Peter probably was 20. And the rest of them were probably 16 or 17 years old. And Jesus says to them, follow me. I'm going to build my church with you. What I hope you see from this is the two things. Number one, the incredible privilege of being chosen to be a disciple of Jesus. If you have come to faith in Christ... God has chosen you to say, I want you to be consumed with Jesus. I want you to be covered with the dust of Jesus. Whatever Jesus does, I want you to be covered with his dust, sit at his feet, be consumed with knowing him and knowing what he has said and memorizing his teaching and studying his life. incredible honor to be chosen to be a disciple of the Messiah. Also, I want you to see what an incredible responsibility it is to be entrusted, to be a disciple of the Messiah, to be a part of this church planting movement that Jesus started a couple of thousand years ago that has led to you being here today. We can't Drop the ball. It wasn't all done. Jesus didn't do all of that just to plant Norris Ferry Church. Mission accomplished. Stop the presses. We don't have to continue the church planting movement. No. We are just one of the churches in this movement. And he says, I want you to be a multiplying movement. Not just a duplication, but a multiplication Where we are multiplying churches that multiply healthy churches that multiply healthy churches. For the transformation of our city and the cities beyond, for the transformation of the world, Jesus has started a church planting movement that will transform all the ends of the earth, all the people of all nations, of every tongue, of every tribe, of every nation, to the glory of God. That's why we're here. What an honor... What a responsibility. I want you to take that seriously. So, Jesus sets forth his new leadership team for his church in the first section. In the second half of this chapter, verses 17 through 26, we see Jesus establishing his new value system for his church. Look what he says. He says, You need a new set of values. And so, We say in verse 17, he continues, Luke continues, and Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him to be healed of diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out, that's the Holy Spirit, power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And he said, and so to just get and see the scene, he's got them on a flat level with all his 12 disciples there, whom he had just called out from the crowd, but he's teaching them at a place where all the crowd can listen. It would be like if I called 12 of 12 of, of you up and said, Hey, sit on the front seat. I want to teach you. You all are listening and learning as I teach them. So he's not just teaching these values to a few select leaders. He's saying you leaders need to impart these values and lead all of these disciples to maintain and live by these values. And so let's read what he says in these new values. He said, Blessed are you who are poor. Who says that? It's not what we say. It's cursed to be poor. Blessed are you who are poor. Why? For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Why? For you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. For you shall laugh. Notice the tenses of the verbs. Now You're poor, now you're hungry, now you weep, but you shall, yours is now the kingdom of God, you shall be satisfied in the future, you shall laugh in the future. Blessed are you when people hate you now, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn you, and your name is evil, on account of the Son of Man." "'Rejoice in that day when they are doing those things to you on account of me, "'and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. "'For so their fathers did the exact same thing to the prophets. "'You're on the right side,' he's saying, "'but woe to you who are rich now, for you have received Your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep when I come. Woe to you when all people speak well of you now, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus is teaching to equip his people a new value system, a way to think as his followers. For the sake of time, let me just summarize what Jesus does here. He takes their value systems and radically turns them inside out, upside down. In three pairs is the best way to look at this. If you notice the, the blessing statements, the blessed are, and then the woes, let's pair them up. Blessed are you who are poor, verse 20. Woe to you who are rich, verse 24. Blessed are you who are hungry, verse 21. Woe to you who are full, verse 25. Blessed are you when people hate you because of Jesus, verse 22. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, verse 26. So what we see is Jesus is turning their value system upside down. Now when he says full and rich, He's not just speaking about money. He's saying in your world, those of you who are aligned with the power structures, the prestige, and the privilege now are on the inside, you're the haves. You have the power, you have the privilege, you have the prestige, and you're fat and happy now. And this crept into the church. If you remember the tax collectors, Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and all the religious people were like, wait, what are you doing? And Jesus said, I came for the poor. I came for the marginalized. I came for the outcast. They were building a power structure. They were building a mega church to their own power and glory and prestige and privilege. And if you want in, you better clean up, get religious before you come in. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works in my church. Jesus says, no, we're going to turn that upside down. That those who are in and powerful and prestigious, but they don't have Jesus, woe to you. You choose that over Jesus, then you aren't blessed, you are cursed. But those who choose Jesus, who empty themselves of their power and their prestige and their privilege in order to take his gospel, to take Jesus outside the power structures, they then, by aligning themselves with Jesus, become the marginalized. Outside the power structures, outside the power and prestige and privilege, And it's going to cause great suffering, and it is at great sacrifice to follow Jesus. To those, he says, but you are blessed. When you do all of that, when you lose your power, your prestige, and your privilege, because you've aligned yourself with Jesus on account of the Son of Man, you are blessed. It's not blessed to be inside on the power structure and privilege absent Jesus. It's blessed to be with Jesus and to take Jesus outside of those power structures, even though it's going to cost you everything. As I mentioned, the the verb tenses are helpful. He's comparing life now, aligned with Jesus, will be filled with sacrifice and potentially with suffering. It will marginalize you and put you outside the the power structures of our culture and society. And there will be a price to pay now. But you're blessed because you're with Jesus. And he promises you a future reality that far surpasses any of the sufferings you might undergo. Jesus is helping them understand, helping them have perspective So that they can faithfully persevere as he's called them. You see, such treatment by the world, like the prophets before, he says, this is how you know who you've aligned with. If you treated right and treated great, well, that's exactly how they treat their own. But if you've suffered, then that should encourage you to know that you are aligning with Jesus because Following Jesus means becoming like Jesus, means you're going to be treated like Jesus was treated. And how was Jesus treated? He was mocked, he was crucified, he was betrayed. Why should we expect to be treated any differently if we are following Jesus and consumed with becoming just like Jesus? So here's what I want you to do today I want you to see that it is a tremendous honor. To be chosen to be a disciple of Jesus. And I want to challenge you to take that honor with great seriousness. That you have been called to be consumed with Jesus. Not casual. Not, hey, let me sprinkle a little Jesus in my life. But let me have the life I want. And sprinkle a little Jesus in there. That's not what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple means to be covered in his dirt. To be covered in his dust. To be consumed with his word. To be guided by his spirit. To be equipped by his church. To fulfill his mission of planting a church movement that multiplies his glory to the ends of the earth. Is that what you understand being a Christian means? That's what Jesus means when he says, be my disciple and make disciples. So as we seek to multiply gospel-healthy churches, it happens through you taking your discipleship seriously, through me taking my discipleship seriously. And it needs to be bathed in prayer. So I want you to write these prayer requests, or I'll make them available this week, because I'll probably go too fast for you to write. But here's what I want you to pray this week. In your community groups, I hope that you will take time and spend a season of prayer for each of these four prayer requests. Ask the Lord to give us a clear strategy on how we're going to multiply throughout this city. A clear strategy. Ask the Lord to raise up men and women who say, I want to go. I want to be a part of multiplying healthy churches. Ask the Lord to give us clear wisdom on how to equip those who are ready to go. And ask the Lord to open opportunities. I'm even praying now that churches who are struggling in this city would would call us and say, hey, would you come help us? As we do this, we can expect it's going to take great sacrifice. And I want you to be encouraged that if you are a disciple of Jesus, the kingdom of God is yours. You will be satisfied. You will laugh one day, and your reward in heaven is great. Father, I pray that you would inspire us this morning Challenge us to be consumed with being like you. Help us to lead others to follow you.